0: Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Nas Podcast. You dream like that guy? You have flying dreams? Flying dreams are the best dreams, people. Ask God for flying dreams. Before we uh, turn our attention to his word, though, I want to do this. Um, This week is another big week in the life of our fellowship, because uh, a bunch of our people are going to head not only out of town, but out of the country. In the denomination that we're a part of, the Church of the Nazarene, we have a program for involving people like you and me in the worldwide mission of the church. It's called Work and Witness. And... uh, Anybody who's a part of a local church of the Nazarene can join with other like-minded folks and they can find a project somewhere in the world and give their vacation time and some of their financial resources to help make it happen. This congregation has a long partnership with Work and Witness and it, it excites me. It's one of the things that drew me to the congregation when we were first just getting to know each other. Uh, Jim Gentry is leading a team of people that will be headed to Guatemala this week. Jim, would you just bring your team and stand right down front here for me, please? Okay, all of you that are in church this Sunday and uh, not home packing, come right down here. Just, um, first I'll have you face the congregation, okay? I want somebody to take a picture of this, and then as they turn to the right and get the mug shot, you know, Okay. Take a look at this group of folks. And uh, Jim, yeah. Yeah, this is good and appropriate. Jim, how many in your team? 17. 17. Okay, looks like most-ish are here today, right? Wife's in the nursery, Wife's in the nursery serving. Thank you. She's over helping with Children's Church. Yeah, fantastic. Well, um, working witness team, know this. Uh, we're proud of you. We love you, and we're going to be praying for you. Um, Also know that life will not go like you expect it to, okay? Um, If you haven't been on a work and witness trip, take that itinerary and follow it closely as you can. And then memorize this word from Scripture. Blessed are the flexible, for they will not be bent out of shape. Okay, it's in there. Trust me, it's in there. Because every work and witness trip that I've ever been a part of um, there comes some point in the week where this thing takes a hard, unannounced left-hand turn, and your witness, the, 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 the message that you send to the folks that you'll be involved with in Guatemala will either be validated or invalidated by the way that you respond to those hard left-hand turns. See, the Spirit of the Lord who lives in you gives us peace, right? He gives us strength when ours fails. So you're going to get tested. You're going to get tried. But look to your leader. He'll point you to Jesus. And you guys together go and do what it is that the Holy Spirit and your church are commissioning you to do. Okay? For our part, on this end, we're not just going to sit around and wait to hear what happens. We're going to pave the road ahead of you by interceding for you. You can count on us this week. At first light, when we get up, the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to mention you to the Father. Ask him to take good care of you and ask him to use you to accomplish his purposes. You'll probably get more work done than you thought that you could. That's a common occurrence on work and witness trips. Um, But you're going to have some moments when the work just fades into the periphery and you will recognize that God is on the scene and he's letting you have a front row seat on what he's doing we can get more people to go and smear mortar on bricks. But when God chooses you for that moment with another human being, when those slip by, they're gone forever. So make sure that as you work hard on the work part, that you also are, are attentive to the voice of the Lord, because that witness part, that's the eternal stuff. Everything that you build, everything I've ever built on a work and witness trip is going to be shoved into a hole one day. But the witness stuff, that's eternal. That's eternal. So know that your friends and family here, we've got your backs, okay? But God's got you right in the palm of his hand. Now I'd like for you to turn and just face that way, and I want to ask the church family to gather in behind him, lay hands on him, and let's pray. Jim, you're the leader. I'm going to get my hands on you, okay? All right. Gracious God, the chance to go and do this is a, is a real privilege most of the places to which we go for work and witness trips, um, we go to help people who can't afford to travel outside of their own town. It's, it's almost uniquely American to have the ability to participate in international travel. But I thank you that you called all these folks who stand across the front of this church to take their well-deserved vacation time To take their hard earned financial resources and to point them the direction of helping the hurting, the suffering, and the poor. I thank you that you have given this church years ago a vision for continued participation in work and witness. We delight in it, Father. We ask, of course, that you'd protect our friends as they travel. We don't take it for granted. We ask that you'd grant them special favor with uh, customs and immigration agents. It could be some sticky spots uh, going in and out of uh, foreign countries, and this one too. So we just ask that you would, you'd go before them, and you'd help them to find favor with those who, who are in authority. When they get on the scene, Lord, the work's going to be long and hard, but your grace and your strength are sufficient for all things. So we're asking you to uh, bear up those who go when their strength fails. If they're hurting, we're asking you to bind up their wounds. When they get to the end of their temper, we pray, dear Lord, that you just remind them how patient you are with each of us. And above all, we pray for the people to whom our team goes. Lord, may, they be, may the Christian brothers and sisters there be encouraged that there are some who came to help. And may the people who do not yet know you, who come across the path of these Lewiston Nazarenes, and they come to know you as Lord and Savior, convinced by the loving kindness that you have shed abroad in the hearts of each of these people, your servants. Make it a time of great joy, and great fellowship, and make our reunion sweet where we can one more time celebrate the good things that you have done and give thanks that we got to have a little part in it. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're welcome. Yes. I know, I don't have to tell you, but take lots of pictures. We'll have a service where you get to dominate the thing and show us what it is that God took you down there to do, okay? If you're here at uh, First Naz for the first time today, we want you to know that we are really genuinely glad that you are here with us. We think uh, it's a good thing whenever people decide that they're at a place in life where it's time to check out God, Jesus, church, spirituality, faith, any of that stuff, and we think that this is a good place to check it out, a good place for you to uh, get a a sample of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If you've uh, wondered what people do in these buildings on Sunday... Well, it's a lot of what you've just seen. And then what I'm doing up here right now, but we're glad that you took the time to come and visit with us this morning, but I also need to uh, let you know that the section of the Bible that we're going to study together today is really kind of pointed at people who've already decided to be followers of Jesus, so if you're here for the first time, you're just starting to check out the whole God, church, Jesus, spirituality thing, you might be off the hook this morning, okay, but all the same, I'm also going to be teaching a principle that I think can apply to people all across the board, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not. And so as you listen this morning, if you think that this might be something that would benefit you, maybe think about putting it uh, to work in your own life. If you're already a follower of Jesus, this is a lesson from the Bible for you, for us together, and it is a command But I know as soon as I say command, people are going, oh man, I hate rules and not another one. Just um, take a big deep breath, relax for just a little bit, because I think you will find by the time we get to the end of the talk today, that what God is trying to do in giving us this command from the book of Hebrews is he's trying to give us a break and he's trying to help us come to experience some rest and some relief, First Naz has a mission, just one. It's this, make more disciples for Jesus. And we understand that a disciple is somebody who connects with God and other disciples, who grows in their faith and who serves other people as a way of life. The, for the rest of this summer, the months of July and August, the the sermons, the lessons that I give, they're going to focus on the grow part of the equation, okay? So intentionally, from here forward, over the course of the summer, we're going to grow together in our faith. And as we do so, we're going to be studying a series of passages from a section in your Bible titled, The Epistle to the Hebrews. If you're not familiar with that language, epistle just means long, old letter, okay? So it's a letter to some people that were described as Hebrews. Who were the Hebrews? The Hebrews were uh, a people of a certain ethnicity, but they were also a people who shared one religion. They had been raised as a part of the Jewish faith. But the letter is written not just to any old Hebrews and not just any old Jewish Hebrews, but specifically to some Jewish Hebrews who had, in the words of a Jewish Christian friend of mine, upgraded their faith to version 2.0 and had become followers of Jesus Christ. Okay, So these were Hebrews jewish christians hebrew jewish christians but there was a a subset within that group that the letter was really written to because some persecution had broken out against the church of jesus christ and a certain number of these hebrew jewish christians started looking at this whole thing and saying it's getting kind of tough it's getting kind of painful I'm getting kind of tired of all of the bad stuff that's happening to me because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Why don't we just talk a little bit about just going back to being Jewish people? Because, I mean, it's the same God, but fewer beatings. So who's not going to be interested in that? The writer to the Hebrews is writing specifically to that group of people who are considering giving up on their faith in Jesus because life had gotten too hard as a follower of Jesus. And he was encouraging them to do a couple of things. First of all, this letter was intended to reconvince the Hebrew disciples that Jesus really is the one and that he's worth following. But he was also going in this letter to try to remind them to stick together, to hang together very tightly in a close-knit group. Because from time to time, all of us, persecuted or not, end up getting tired. Or we end up getting distracted. We start to drift away a little bit from our commitment to Jesus and to other Christ followers. Sometimes people slip through the cracks. The writer to the Hebrews said, don't want that to happen. So why don't you do this? Hold on to Jesus. Hold on to one another very, very tightly. And so you'll see as you read the book of Hebrews, and I'd encourage you to do that over the course of July and August, why don't you just point your devotional reading toward Hebrews, and get through that book a, a time or two, you'll find that there's a series of of commands in the book that start with, let us, and it's an important point, this word together that we have here that Scott talked about, the project that the Sunday school children did together, the worship banners back there, all their, the work of all their little hands. The word together is a key word, a key theme in the book of Hebrews because none of the commands in Hebrews, almost none, are intended for solo spirituality. They're not commands given to individual Christ followers. Instead, the writer to the Hebrews says, together, Let's do this together. All of you together, see to it that none of you lose hope. All of you together, practice these things. And so you'll find them in the book, where as you read it, it'll say, let us, and you might just kind of pull and plug in there. Together, we do the following things, okay? That's where we're going over the course of the next few weeks. Not uh, solo spirituality. There's room for that elsewhere in the Christian scriptures. But this is the group project of faith in Jesus. And that's what we're going to work on for the next few weeks. You in summer mode yet? You should have gotten there by, say, Monday afternoon, because, baby, it was summer here on Monday afternoon. We had a bunch of us gathered to move Pastor Bill and Bonnie, and Brian brought us the glad tidings that it was 114 degrees in Lewiston. Ah, Summer's here. It absolutely is. And for some people, summer mode means that they just go into this kicked back, slowed down pace, and they just kind of let life happen. But other people take a whole different approach to summer and it means that it's vacation season. And that means that the travel and play schedules get thrown into high gear and we start into this breathless sprint from camping trip to river day to family reunion to theme park to water park to fishing trip to softball tournament to back home do laundry maybe get to church once twice during the summer and back out there again to do all of the stuff. Have you said to yourself this week, have you looked at the schedule? Some of you did, I know. Looked at the schedule and said, I don't know how we're going to squeeze it all in by the end of summer, right? Yeah. Um, some of us use summer vacation uh, to cram all of that stuff in there, and by the end of it, we're just used up, and we're just grateful for the breather constituted by a school year. <laughs> wow. Wow. Wow, that's a strange perspective, isn't it? Summer vacation often doesn't produce anything that resembles rest for us. You know, a lot of people approach faith and spirituality the same way. This breathless sprint towards something. Something in their hearts and minds tells them that they're a very long way away from God and and they're pretty sure that it's their fault. And even if they don't use the language of sin, all of us know that we've done things that are just flat out wrong and we really are hoping that God doesn't know about them. It has created what I think, what I like to call an uneasy distance between God and almost all of us. Have you felt that before? That gap that you kind of are glad is there because you don't know if you could look God in the face. But at the same time, it makes him feel so far away. And there's this buffer, strange buffer of guilt and shame feelings where you and God just kind of seem to keep your distance from one another. A lot of people ignore that uneasy distance, but the truth is that we can't do it forever. And whenever the circumstances of life bring us to the place that we can't bear up under the estrangement from God, the distance, where we can't bear up under the guilt feelings or the shame any longer, there's something in us that starts to to uh, bubble up and, and, and prompt us to action. The problem is we don't know what to do. There's something in our hearts that says something has to change. I have to do something differently, but we don't know what to do. And when we don't know what to do about the distance between us and God, about the guilt and the shame, you know what most people do? That's when they get all religious and they start thinking, oh, got to do religious things. Let's go to church. Let's go to church a lot. And some good things happen. They meet some good people. They still feel distant from God. Maybe brush up against him a little bit here in a worship service, but they walk out the door and they go, God still seems far away. Lay their heads on their pillows at night, they still feel ashamed, still feel guilty. Wonder if God's going to hold all that stuff against them. So they decide um, that that's probably not working. They should try something else and try really hard. So they've been told that Christians are supposed to read the Bible. So they start reading the Bible Only to find out that the Bible's hard to read. And there's some stuff in there that will mess with your head. Because if you just read it in short blips, it's just going to look like it's one giant massacre from cover to cover. And bad people doing bad things to each other in God's name. There's names you can't even pronounce. And as you read the Bible, you find out that it's hard to read. And so you quit reading the Bible. Now you feel guiltier than you did when you started. So somebody told you you should pray, so you start praying every day. But you find out that um, God isn't a great conversationalist. He doesn't just go on and on and on and on. He listens a lot. And when he speaks, he usually speaks kind of softly or quietly. And he's not a big fan of small talk, and none of us are either when it comes to conversation with God. And so we, we've been told we're supposed to pray, and then we try it, and we feel like we're not good at it. And so we don't do much of that either. And we feel guiltier. Give money, volunteer, whatever. We do a bunch of that. It doesn't seem to get us closer to him. It doesn't take away the guilt and the shame. And so we do less of it and then feel guiltier yet. So if I get this timetable right, we felt a long way from God. We felt guilty and ashamed. We didn't know what to do about it. So we tried all kinds of religious stuff and none of that worked. And in the end, after all of my religious efforts, I feel farther from God, guiltier and more ashamed of myself. It's no wonder people give up on religion, huh? There's an answer, and I want us to look at it today. Those things that we talked about, they can all be good things. They all have their place within spiritual life. But the ardent trying and the striving and the effort to push those things forward is never going to erase the uneasy distance between you and God. And it's never going to effectively deal with the fact of your guilty consciences. That breathless, self-defeating religion never was what God wanted for his people. It isn't from him. As we'll see in just a few minutes, from the very beginning of time, God has wanted a healthy, holy relationship with people. But get this, this is very important. From the beginning of time, God has always wanted a healthy, holy relationship with human beings. But he has always assumed that the responsibility to provide for that relationship was on him, not on us. Let me say it again. God's always wanted healthy, holy relationship with human beings, but from the very beginning of time, he has assumed that the responsibility to produce that relationship was on him, not on us. I'm sure there's some inner hallelujahs right now. I'm absolutely certain it's happening because somebody just got the point that this relationship with God that you've been trying to make happen for years of your life, you finally understood but God said, it's not your job. It's mine. Let's take a look at the word so we can see whether or not this is really true. How does a person work his way or her way into a healthy relationship with God? Trick question. I just told you, you can't do that. Can't do that. You don't, you don't work your way into one. You do this. Everybody do this. Get your hands out in front of you just like this. Palms up. Okay. This is what happens when somebody approaches you at Christmas with a gift, or when they come to your door with a meal. You just do this. Why? Because you want what they're about to give. This is the universal sign of <laughs> thank you, right? It means acceptance. It means that I'm ready to get. I do lots of giving. At this point, I'm ready to get. This is the this is the the um, posture of people toward God. Because he says, I've got a relationship. I've got something that I want to give you. You don't have to go get it. I'm going to bring it to you. And you receive. You accept. Okay? Um, listen to this. The writer of the Hebrews put it this way. Under the old religious system, he's talking about the Jewish sacrificial system. Under the old religious system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think... How much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God? Isn't that what the religious people were looking for? They were looking for the uneasy distance between them and God to be, to be bridged. They were looking for the, the shame and the guilt to go away. He says here, just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds, from guilt, so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a prayer perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates a new relationship between God and people so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance that God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed. Jesus' followers believe that because Jesus lived sinlessly— and then died sacrificially, whoever believes that can be forgiven of everything that separates them from God, and the uneasy distance can be closed. It can go away. We call that, that business of, of of believing that what Jesus did is good enough to get me forgiven, we call that moment of aha awareness where we do this, and we accept that relationship from God, we call that being saved from our sins, Or you might hear Christians call it being born again. If uh, you hear this happening to a person who had uh, a religious affiliation before that, we might call it converting. We might call it upgrading, right, Tom? might call it upgrading to version 2.0. Yeah. Jesus' followers believe that because Jesus lived sinlessly and died sacrificially, whoever believes that stuff will be forgiven of everything that separates them from God and will have an eternal relationship with him. Um, we don't earn that relationship. We just trust that what the Bible says is true and we thankfully accept what Jesus has done for us. In other words, we decide to stop worrying about a relationship with God and start enjoying and celebrating one instead. If you walked into a Christian worship service like this one this morning and you hear really excited music and people getting into it, you know why? It's because they got this point. They are done worrying about a relationship with God, done striving to try to get one. And we're just celebrating the good news that there's this great, big, holy, loving God who wanted to have a relationship with us, so said, here. And we're taking him by his hand and we're taking him at his word and saying, good enough for me. And we're starting to to walk out that relationship with him and we're finding it to be the most exciting, exhilarating thing in the world. We're very thankful for it. And that's why we come in here on Sunday mornings and you see a little bit of celebration happening in this place. And the book of Hebrews shows us that this plan, the delivery from God of a, of a healthy, holy relationship with him based on what Christ has done, not on your earning, not on your striving, that is, uh, the book of Hebrews shows us that this plan has existed from the very beginning of time. Now check this out because I think that if you really come to understand and believe this, that your spiritually exhausted living and even some of your physically exhausted living can come to an end today. Today. So let's look at Hebrews. It's near the end of your Bible if you want want to turn in a physical copy of it. Otherwise, you'll see it um, up here on the screen. Chapter 3, verse 6, reads this way. Christ, as the Son is in charge of God's entire house. And we are God's house if we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. I'm going to read it again. Christ, as the Son, is in charge of God's entire house. And we are God's house if, if we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. It's just a reminder to us that our hope of relationship with God comes from trusting Jesus' work, not our own. If we remain confident of our hope in Christ, if we keep fastened on the cross and, the, and the, the empty tomb events, if we keep counting on what Jesus did instead of on what we have done, the writer to the Hebrews says, we will continue to remain connected with God like his household or his family. He's not talking about the the, the bricks and mortar, the, the timbers and the drywall and the carpet. Not house in that sense, but household. We, we remain connected with God as his family as long as we keep focused on where this relationship comes from, not from me and all the good things that I do, not from all my church going, not from all my Bible reading, not from all my money giving, not from all my praying. The connection comes because I have accepted the free gift that he's offered us, that Jesus earned for us. I continue to remain as part of the family of God when I do that. Later on in that chapter, beginning in verse 14, we read about an ancient period in the life of the nation of Israel. They'd been living as slaves in Egypt for about 430 years, but God freed them and said that he was going to do something miraculous for them. He's gonna take them on a little field trip. They could walk it in a couple of weeks time, even with all the the elderly and the little and the weak and the infirm, they could walk it in about two weeks time and he was gonna take them to another country that he had promised to their forefather Abraham. And he said, there are other people who live there, but don't worry about it because I have revealed myself to them and they have rejected me. They have continued to be sinful and be more and more and more sinful. Sinful enough that they're infecting the neighboring tribes with stuff that I can't mention in front of women and children. And you see, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna punish them and I'm gonna run them out of their land. I'm gonna give it to you. And then you just live faithful to me and all those people around your borders. They'll see how good life is connected with me. They'll join you. And through that plan, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the whole earth. They'll say, what other people have been so privileged just to have their God with them? We want in on that action. So, great plan. Doesn't that sound like a great plan? God takes them on this trip. He runs them over there to the border of that land. And they look and see that there are indeed people still living there. And they decided that God just simply couldn't be trusted to do what he said he was going to do. Problem is that when they got to the border of that country, they lost confidence in God. They didn't think that he was strong enough to help them. They didn't think he was loving enough to continue to provide for them. And they didn't think that he was going to be faithful enough to remember his promises. So instead of crossing the border into that country, into that new free life, that new restful kind of life where God just delivers it up for them, They instead decided to retreat back to this harsh desert where human life is barely sustainable. And they spent about 40 years out there nomadically wandering around the desert, afraid that God was going to turn his back on them. And over that 40 years, an entire generation of these unbelieving people died off. See, God had a restful plan for them. Just move in. I'll take care of the... You you just show up. I'll I'll move you in. But instead, when they said God can't be trusted to do what he said he'd do, they went and worked themselves to death for 40 years. So I'll tell you this. When you're in the desert, packing water, it's heavy. It's eight pounds a gallon. You're going to go through a lot of it when it's 120 degrees out or, you know, just an average Monday in Lewiston in the summer, right? You're going to go through a lot of it, yeah. You're going to cook some food, you got to have some firewood. But if there's uh, no trees for miles, wood cutting gets a little more difficult. And most people don't like to cook their food over the dung of their animals. So, you know, got to pack some firewood. Got to get up in the morning and God's going to rain down food from heaven, but we have got to pick it up and then we got to process it and do all that stuff each day. And for 40 years, these folks instead of walking into the rest that God had planned for them, they worked themselves to death. And an entire generation fell in the desert. God had a restful plan for them. He and they would have had a close relationship. And he would have provided literally everything they needed. Homes, farms, food, even literal national security. You name it, God would supply it. But they didn't think that God was trustworthy. And eventually, their fears then hardened into accusations against God. You've turned your back on us. The writer to the Hebrews then takes up this story and he offers this commentary on the situation in chapter 3, verse 19. He says, So we see that because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter his rest. Now hear it. Because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter his rest. God doesn't know what he's talking about. I know my situation well. I have checked out the present set of circumstances. I know what needs to happen. Bunch of religious talk. Yeah, yeah, God, I got to do, we'll do this my way. Because they didn't trust him, because they didn't believe him. They were not able to enter his rest. Listen to what he says next in, in chapter four. God's promise of entering his rest still stands. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. For this good news that God has prepared this rest has been announced to us just as it was to them, but it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. For only we who believe can enter his rest. As the others, as for the others, God said, am I angry? I took an oath. They'll never enter my place of rest even though this rest has been ready since he made the world. We know it is ready because of the place in the scriptures where it mentions the seventh day. And here he quotes Genesis, first book of the Bible. On the seventh day, God rested from all his work. But in the other passage, God said, they will never enter my place of rest. Let me kind of untangle that for you. All along, from the very beginning of time, God has planned to provide a way for there to be healthy holy relationship between himself and people just like you and me. In chapter 4, verse 3, the writer put it this way, this rest has been ready since he made the world. And there, like I said before, he's referring all the way back to Genesis, where we read that God rested on the seventh day of creation. God then explained this whole resting on the seventh day of creation thing to Moses, the leader of the people who were doing laps in the desert. When he was giving him the Ten Commandments, he explained it this way, He said to Moses, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day, he rested. That's why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. That's Exodus chapter 20. So at the story of creation, we have the interesting fact that the God whose strength is limitless and who therefore needs no rest took the seventh day to rest to stop working. When he hands Israel their national charter, the Ten Commandments, he brings up the rest thing again and says, I rested as an example to you, and now I want you to follow my example. I want you to rest. Rest is a holy thing, and both your bodies and your soulish parts need it. So observe it. Do it. You don't understand it yet. You're going to think it's just a bunch of religious ceremonial kind of things, but I want you to trust me when you don't understand. I want you to trust me that my heart is good. I want you to trust that I'm wise. I want you to trust that I'm just doing this to provide for you a healthy, holy relationship with me. So do it. It'll pay off. I'll explain later. But they didn't trust him, so the people of Israel, for the most part, just treated that day like it was any other day. They called it the Sabbath, but they were all the time trying to sneak around and do a little work on the side because, you know, you got to take care of yourself since God's not going to. A matter of weeks later, however, he's, he's got them near the end of this journey. He takes them to the border of the biggest rest of their lives, where, where he's going to give them the cities and the farms and the crops and the orchards of Palestine, but they don't think he will, as I told you before, so bam, they don't enter God's rest. They instead choose 40 years on a very hot treadmill of sand. God's response was well, if you believe me, whatever I say to you, you can rest. If you don't believe me, you never can get any rest, because I know you, and you'll just keep trying and trying and trying and trying and trying to earn or secure something for yourself. See, people usually don't believe that life can be as simple as trusting God to keep his word. So we usually try to get the results that God promises by working at it ourselves, don't we? One of the ways we work at it is by getting all religious. Striving, striving, striving. The writer to the Hebrews said that God has always wanted people to relax into a life-saving relationship that he offers, but that people that don't ever trust him, well, they can't have the rest. They can't get what he offers, and they can't get the rest that comes from trusting him to do it. That was true of the nation of Israel historically. It is still true of people today. Those who don't trust God don't get what he wants for them, nor do you get the rest that comes from him providing it. But those who do trust God will get what he offers, and restfully so. So check this out some rapid-fire statements from the fourth chapter of Hebrews. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, God's promise of entering his rest still stands. Verse 3, we who believe can enter that rest. Verse 6, God's rest is there for people to enter. Verse 9, there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. Doesn't it seem like this idea of resting kind of a big deal to God? It is. He keeps trying to get people to rest. From what we've read in Hebrews today, we can see a thread that is woven throughout the fabric of time. God rested after creating the world even though he didn't need rest? Hmm, maybe he was trying to make a point, huh? Yeah. God rested even though he didn't need it? At the giving of the Ten Commandments, he reemphasizes the rest day, the Sabbath day. It's special to him, set apart by him as holy. Still doesn't tell us what the point of it is, though. Just a few weeks after that, though, he he led them to the border of the country that he promised to give them. And he said, why don't you rest? Why don't you trust me? I'm giving it to you. I really am. But they didn't. So they retreated into the desert. Centuries later, Jesus shows up. He worked to accomplish our salvation, dying on the cross to accept the punishment for the sins of the whole human race. And his disciples got it. And so they wrote that about that, saying that all we have to do to receive salvation is to trust him. We can be forgiven. We can have an eternal life with him. The writer to the Hebrews then picks up the theme and repeatedly states that God still has a special rest that he wants the people of God to enter into. I want to show you two more short passages from Hebrews, and then I'm done. Check this out. Verses 9 through 11. So there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors, just as God did after creating the world so Let us do our best to enter that rest. Hmm. From the beginning of time, God's wanted a healthy, holy relationship with you. So from the beginning, he planned for you to be able to experience physical and spiritual rest every week of your life for one day. He told us to take a day every week to just put it in park, to rest He always kind of hoped that that physical rest that you would repeat every week of your life would serve as a a reminder that you don't need to strive spiritually to earn a relationship with him. So he gives us a command that each week you and I stop for a day and rest and remind one another of his love. Remind one another not to fall into thinking that we have to earn his forgiveness or acceptance. He set the example for us in resting himself, then gave a a reminder in the Ten Commandments, then brought about a real-life historical example in the nation of Israel to show us how foolish and destructive it is to ignore his commands. He then picks up the theme in the New Testament and says, my rest is still waiting for you. Why don't you, together, as a people, plan to stop the bus one day a week? just relax together. Remind one another of my love, my provision for you, my forgiveness, my acceptance. Why don't you do it together as a people? Make sure you rest physically as a way of reminding yourself of the spiritual reality, and that way it will become a lasting reminder to you. But you have to do it together as a people. You know why? Because if I try to practice Sabbath on my own and you go about all your work, you're going to mess up my Sabbath because you call me and want me to work. And the same thing's true on uh, the other way around, is that if you decide on your own, you're going to practice Sabbath, all the rest of us are going to go, who's the lazy guy? Right? When I was a small child living in the Bible Belt, he had what were called blue laws. And uh, saint and sinner alike observed blue laws. It meant that on Sunday, stores weren't open. Most restaurants weren't open. You could not get fuel on a Sunday. As they closed Saturday night as well, and the whole world just kind of did this <sighs> for a day. You weren't forced into going to church if you weren't church going kind of people. But the whole community decided that once in a while you gotta stop. And so we had a day of rest. I miss those days. I'm convinced that I need them. Here's the American recipe. Work your brains out. Six days a week, maybe seven. Play so hard that you collapse at work the next day. Do that for 50 weeks out of the year. And then for two weeks, try to catch up. American rhythm, 50 to 2. God's rhythm, 6 to 1. Why is it that Americans suffer burnout? Why is it that Americans have uh, emotional collapse? I'll tell you part of the reason. It's because we think we're smarter than God. It's because we don't trust him. We think we trust our wisdom and not his. We've decided that 50 to 2 is the real recipe. And I'd ask you today, is it really working for you? See, you, you can't really enter his rest if you don't trust his wisdom. You can't really enter his rest. You can't really get the things that he wants to provide for you and restfully so if you think you're smarter or if you think that you're better. This comes from recognizing that God's who God is and I am not the God and I take my place under his authority, respectful of his authority, but recognizing his wisdom and then honoring that loving heart of his that says, I just wanted to give something nice to you. I didn't have a harsh command. I wasn't trying to kill your fun. I had something that I knew you'd want, and I knew you'd need. And here it is. Trust me. Go ahead and take it. Trust me. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7 says, So God set another time for entering his rest. That time is today. So let's talk about how we might apply this truth and we'll be done. First, if, if you don't already have a healthy relationship with God, this passage means that you can start one today. It starts with the decision to abandon your efforts to make yourself good enough to get God to like you. Newsflash. He already does. He already loves you. There's nothing you can do to impress him at this point. He's already completely taken with you. If you want that restful kind of relationship with him, it starts with a decision to abandon your efforts to make yourself good enough to get God to like you or love you. Just do this and just accept that he already does and decide to believe that Jesus' work on the cross provides everything necessary for you to be forgiven of all that junk in your past and to erase the uneasy distance between you and him. Then just ask him, come and start a friendship with me, and he'll do it. And then I would just advise you that you then heed his wisdom and take a day each week to live like no other day. Rest and reflect on his love and his goodness. Come connect with us. Worship God with us. And then set aside the rest of the day for intentional rest from your labor and from your spiritual worry and striving. Relax, and let God love you into a relationship with him. If you already are a Jesus follower, can you take your spiritual pulse for just a minute? Does your spiritual life feel like the following of a bunch of rules to keep God from getting mad at you? Do you worry that you're not a good enough Christian to please God? Do you worry that maybe you're not really a Christian at all? Those doubts come from somewhere. They come from a misunderstanding of what it really means to believe in Jesus. To believe in him is to make a willful decision, to trust that what he has done to save you will work. And to quit worrying about your puny efforts to measure up or to fill in the gaps. God never wanted a bunch of neurotic striving. His dream for you was that you just trust him so much, that your spirit would be at peace in this life. The promise of peace is not for heaven alone. It's for this life, if you trust him. Have you slipped back into your worried striving to get God to love you? Do you need to decide again today to place your trust in Jesus? Let me finish by offering just one hint about how to live a life of pretty consistent spiritual peace. Free from worries about whether you're good enough for God. Here's the hint. Set aside Sunday as a true Sabbath. A day that is filled with group worship and mutual commitment to rest physically. Over time... This practice has brought me to a place of spiritual rest, a real peaceful trust in the saving power of Jesus. That's why when I leave here, I'm going to eat some lunch, and then I'm going to put my face on a pillow. And I will not answer my phone. And this evening, I'm going to sit in a chair. And when sundown comes, I'll probably get up out of it and lay down in the bed again. I'll go to work tomorrow. I've done this for years. And I want to tell you what it's done for me. I no longer am frightened about death. I'm no longer worried about what will happen at the gates of heaven. Because I'm trusting Jesus. And I've laid to rest any ridiculous notion that I might impress him enough for me to get into heaven in the first place. So I'm just banking on that cross. And this little bit of trust that He's enabled me to have in Him. Sunday, day of rest. I'm working hard right now, but in a few moments I won't be. And that rest that takes up the rest of my day, I am convinced has brought the peace of God into my life. I'm not about to preach a rule to you. Thou shalt rest on the Sabbath because it's not my place to do it. Besides, God already did it. You can either ignore His command or follow it. And I just want to offer to you a helpful suggestion from someone who experiences the peace that comes from trusting God to provide for my salvation and to provide whatever my family needs. I don't have to work this day. The other days of the week will be enough. And it has given me the best gift any man can have in this life. Peace with God. I'd invite you to stand with me, bow your heads and close your eyes. Two prayers today. The first one is for anyone who, uh, maybe maybe today was your first time here. I, I talked to you at the very beginning of the sermon, said you're off the hook, and you totally are. But I also said if you heard something that you might benefit from, maybe you should just grab it and you know put it in your life today. So I just ask everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes. And if you're a person who just came to check it out today, but you've heard something that interests you, and you say, man, I never wanted religion because it seemed like more rules. But if what you're telling me is true and God already loves me and he wants to accept me and forgive me, I want that. I'm going to accept a free relationship with him today. If that's where you're at today, why don't you pray this prayer? Just kind of repeat it under your breath uh, or even in silence. Phrase by phrase after me. God, I'm glad I'm here today. And it seems like you're here too. I think something came alive in my spirit today. And it's reaching your direction. I want to have a real life. I want that uneasy distance between you and me to disappear. I'm tired of feeling guilty and ashamed. And I am done trying to impress you. But I hear you offer a free gift of healthy, holy relationship to anyone who trusts you. So even though it feels a little shaky, I can't hardly believe it's true. Today, today, I place my trust in what Jesus has done. And I ask you to forgive me and to come and live with me. Make a real friendship where before there was an uneasy distance. I trust in you, Jesus. Keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer today, um, would, would you just raise your hand? I'm not going to single you out. I just want to know how to pray for you. Yeah, good. All right, yeah, good, yeah, good, I see you back there, yeah. Hey, Lord, I love it when you do this. I love it when you, you break past all the, all the barriers and you speak to people's hearts. Would you help my brothers and sisters who just raised their hands to let out a big, deep, cleansing sigh, ah. Oh. And to, time, and, to, and to take a rest, a break, to find a rest in trusting what you have done. Now grab a hold of them, God, and keep them close to you. Keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed if you would. Today, if you're already a Jesus follower, but you say, you know what? I, I live half scared of the day I die. I live, I live half afraid of what God thinks of me. I just can't, I don't know if I can try one more day I heard what you said today, Pastor, and I think it's time for me to rest and to really trust God to love me and to give me eternal life. And today's a turning point for me. I'd like for you to pray for me. Would you just raise your hand so I can know how to pray for you? Yeah? Okay, good. Yep, back there too, I see you. Yep. Yep. Lord, you see hands and hearts. And I pray that those who today have heard the good news that they can clock out and rest and let you love them into relationship with you, saving, eternal, healthy, holy relationship. Today can be the day that they experience it again. I pray that you'd make the rest of this day proof that you're real, that you just put a holy hush on their hearts. And help us together as a people to trust you enough to decide as a community to obey your word in this thing. We'll worship. We'll enjoy each other's company. And we're going to leave here to rest in you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Folks, I thank you for your time and attention today. And I just want you to know that... uh, in in telling you that I've experienced God's peace, I don't intend that as, oh, look, I've spiritually arrived and I'm helping you poor spiritual dullards to get the point. It's just this. I'm living the dream, people. And I want you to know the peace of God. Know his love. Obey his word. Rest in his peace this day. Amen.